Section 6 of Insurgent Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenji Yamada. Insurgent Mexico by John Reed. Part 1 Desert War. Chapter 6 Quien vive? At dawn I woke to the sound of shooting and a cracked bugle blowing wildly. Juan Sanchez stood in front of the cuartel, sounding reveille. He didn't know which call reveille was, so he played them all. Patricio had roped a steer for breakfast. The animal started on a plunging, bellowing run for the desert, Patricio's horse galloping alongside. The rest of the tropa only their eyes showing over their serapes, kneeled with their rifles to their shoulders. Crash! In that still air the enormous sound of guns labored heavily up. The running steer jerked sideways, his screaming reached us faintly. Crash! He fell headlong, his feet kicked in the air, Patricio's pony jerked roughly up, and his serape flapped like a banner. Just then the enormous sun rose bodily out of the east pouring clear light over the barren plain like a sea. Pablo emerged from the Casa Grande, leaning on his wife's shoulder. I am going to be very ill, he groaned, suiting the action to the word. Juan Reed will ride my horse. He got into the coach, weakly took the guitar, and sang. I remained at the foot of a green maguey. My ungrateful love went away with another. I awoke to the song of the lark. Oh, what a hangover I have, and the barkeeps won't trust me. Oh, God, take away this sickness. I feel as if I were surely going to die. The virgin of pulque and whiskey must save me. Oh, what a hangover, and nothing to drink. It is some sixty-five miles from La Sarca to the Hacienda of La Cadena, where the tropa was to be stationed. We rode it in one day without water and without food. The coach soon left us far behind. Pretty soon the barrenness of the land gave way to spiny, hostile vegetation, the cactus and the mesquite. We strung out along a deep rut between the gigantic chaparral, choked with the mighty cloud of alkali dust, scratched and torn by the thorny brush. Sometimes, emerging in an open space, we could see the straight road climbing the summits of the rolling desert until the eye couldn't follow it. But we knew it must be there, still farther and farther again. Not a breath of wind stirred. The vertical sun beat down with a fury that made one reel. And most of the troop, who had been drunk the night before, began to suffer terribly. Their lips glazed, cracked, turned dark blue. I didn't hear a single word of complaint, but there was nothing of the light-hearted joking and rollicking of other days. Jose Valiente taught me how to chew mesquite twigs, but that didn't help much. When we had been riding for hours, Fidencio pointed ahead, saying huskily, Here comes a Cristiano. When you realize that word Cristiano, which now means simply man, is descended among the Indians from immeasurable antiquity, and when the man that says it looks exactly as Guatemocin might have looked, it gives you curious sensations. 
The Cristiano in question was a very aged Indian driving a burro. No, he said, he didn't carry any water. But Savas leaped from his horse and tumbled the old man's pack on the ground. Ah, he cried, fine, tres piedras, and held up a root of the sotol plant, which looks like a varnished century plant and oozes with intoxicating juices. We divided it as you divide an artichoke. Pretty soon everybody felt better. It was at the end of the afternoon that we rounded a shoulder of the desert and saw ahead the gigantic ashen alamo trees that surrounded the spring of the hacienda of Santo Domingo. A pillar of brown dust, like the smoke of a burning city, rose from the corral, where vaqueros were roping horses. Desolate and alone stood the Casa Grande, burned by Cheche Campa a year ago. And by the spring, at the foot of the alamo trees, a dozen wandering peddlers squatted around the fire, their burros munching corn. From the fountain to the adobe houses and back moved an endless chain of women water carriers, the symbol of northern Mexico. Water, we shouted, joyously, galloping down the hill. The coach horses were already at the spring with Patricio. Leaping from their saddles, the tropa threw themselves on their bellies. Men and horses indiscriminately thrust in their heads and drank and drank. It was the most glorious sensation I have ever felt. Who has a cigarro? cried somebody. For a few blessed minutes we lay on our backs smoking. The sound of music, gay music, made me sit up. And there, across my vision, moved the strangest procession in the world. First came a ragged peon, carrying the flowering branch of some tree. Behind him, another bore upon his head a little box that looked like a coffin, painted in broad strips of blue, pink, and silver. There followed four men, carrying a sort of canopy made of gay-colored bunting. A woman walked beneath it, though the canopy hid her down to the waist, but on top lay the body of a little girl with bare feet and little brown hands crossed on her breast. There was a wreath of paper flowers in her hair, and her whole body was heaped with them. A harpist brought up the rear, playing a popular waltz called Recuerdos de Durango. The funeral procession moved slowly and gaily along, passing the ribota court, where the players never ceased their handball game, to the little Campo Santo. Bah! spat Julian Reyes furiously. That is a blasphemy to the dead. In the late sunshine, the desert was a glowing thing. We rode in a silent, enchanted land that seemed some kingdom under the sea. All around were great cactuses colored red, blue, purple, yellow as coral is on the ocean bed. Behind us to the west, the coach rolled along in a glory of dust like Elijah's chariot. Eastward, under a sky already darkening to stars, were the rumpled mountains, behind which lay La Cadena, the advance post of the Maderista army. It was a land to love, this Mexico, a land to fight for. The ballad singer suddenly began the interminable song of the bullfight, in which the federal chiefs are the bulls, and the Maderista generals the torreros. And as I looked at the gay, lovable, humble hombres who had given so much of their lives and of their comfort to the brave fight, I couldn't help but think of the little speech Villa made to the foreigners who left Chihuahua in the first refugee train. This is the latest news for you to take to your people. 
there shall be no more palaces in Mexico. The tortillas of the poor are better than the bread of the rich. Come. It was late night, past eleven, when the coach broke down on a stretch of rocky road between high mountains. I stopped to get my blankets, and when I started on again, the compañeros had long vanished down the winding road. Somewhere near, I knew, was La Cadena. At any minute now, a sentinel might start up out of the chaparral. For about a mile, I descended a steep road that was often the dried bed of a river, winding down between high mountains. It was a black night, without stars and bitter cold. Finally, the mountains opened into a vast plain, and across that, I could faintly see the tremendous range of the Cadena and the pass that the tropa was to guard. Barely three leagues beyond that pass, Le Mapimi, held by twelve hundred Federals. But the hacienda was still hidden by a roll of the desert. I was quite upon it, without being challenged, before I saw it, an indistinct white square of buildings on the other side of a deep arroyo, and still no sentinel. That's funny, I said to myself. They don't keep very good watch here. I plunged down into the arroyo and climbed up the other side. In one of the great rooms of the Casa Grande were lights and music. Peering through, I saw the indefatigable Sabas whirling in the mazes of the Jota, and Isidro Amayo, and Jose Valiente. A baile! Just then, a man with a gun lounged out of the lighted doorway. Quien vive? he shouted lazily. Madero! I shouted. May he live, returned the sentinel, and went back to the baile. End of section 6